again, want to say thank you for those people who have uh, come at starting at seven o'clock in the morning now. We have to start an hour earlier just to put up everything. And I'm just so thankful for everybody here. It, it is truly an honor to serve this church as one of the many. Turn with me to Acts 15, verse 36. We're going to start there, the last portion of 15, and then we're going to look at chapter 16, at least the first 10 verses of it. And I just want to say, unapologetically, we are a missional church, right? Uh, I love being a part of a church that goes on mission and sends 80% of their church on mission. Now, I would say 100%, I would love to see, uh, not just go on mission as far as getting on an airplane and going somewhere, but also I would love to see 100% of us, the church, as we've seen in the book of Acts, all go on mission to our backyard, to campus and our workplaces. There's so much, so much territory uh, in our city still to reach. But I would say unapologetically, we are a missional church. We both, uh, there's two passages in the scriptures that are very clear. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Uh, You can put your finger if you want on Acts 16 or 15 and then also move around here a little bit. Uh, We like to move around in the scriptures a lot here. Uh, But Matthew 15, 28 and 18 through 20, you all know this. You've probably memorized it, but let me just read it again. And and, uh, because this is our mission statement. And Jesus came up to them and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In other words, Jesus has authority to tell us what to do, how to live as a church. And this is what he tells us to do. He says, go therefore, or the word go means as you're going about your day, uh, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you even to the end of age. So a couple things here. One, he's pointing out that he has authority and he tells us to go make disciples. This is something that we're, we're not here just to make converts, but we're interested in wanting to see fully mature believers in Christ. And that takes our whole life. It takes everything we have. Also, what's interesting is that he calls us to share the gospel and then baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that is uh, helpful to know because uh, there are lots of different religions baptizing people in their name and what they're doing or their cult or their ministry. But we baptize in Christ's name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then also we teach people how to obey the scriptures. That yes, it is by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. But we also, it's not a but meaning that we add to it, but because people are saved and have given their lives to him, we want to mature people in Christ. And then the second thing that we're about is Acts 1.8, but you will receive power. How do we do evangelism? We, we need to do it with his power and his strength. You'll receive power when you receive the Holy Spirit as he come upon you. And then you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even the remotest parts of the earth. In other words, he's telling us where to do evangelism, where to be missional, and that's everywhere. 
Every corner of the earth is fair game. You know, there's so much talk in the church today that uh, we, we talk so much about, I don't know if, if you noticed this, but we talk a lot about which tracks we should use and how we should do evangelism and what methods we should use. So much is talked about that. I think that's great and we need to eventually get practical. But this morning, what I want to do is, uh, I, I guess you could put on the top is, uh, why are we a missional church? I think we, you know, as we are going to D.C. this year, and this is not some sort of guilt trip for people that are not going. We're just saying we're in, inviting people to come with us. But more than more, we're inviting people to do mission with us every day. And why is that? And what, in other words, we're going to talk about the why of mission, the elements of being evangel- an evangelistic church. And I have... Five points, and I want to give them to you now so you can follow me because the first one's a little longer, okay? Number one, he has given us passion for souls. He's given us passion to do missions. He's given us motivation. Number two, he's given us a family to do mission with. In other words, our slogan, or if you call it that, is we are a family who seeks God together on mission. Number three, we are, uh, he's given us a people to reach. It's the whole world. Number four, he's given us a message to preach. A message to preach. And then number five, he's given us the spirit to direct us and empower us. Those are the five elements of an evangelistic church. He's given us passion or motivation. He's given us a family to run with. Number three, people to reach. Number four, a message to preach. And number five, the spirit of God. Sound good? All right. Here we go. (laughs) It's gonna be a lot of quotes, just so you know. Buckle your seatbelt. It's gonna be good though, very motivating. All right, so in verse 36 of Acts 15, last week we talked about the importance of the Jerusalem council. And And it is important as a church to discuss doctrinal matters. Now, some of you might think, oh, that's kind of boring. But how many know that if we just continue to be a missional church and people come in and, and we grow in, in width, but we don't grow in depth, it will crumble, right? Some of us have been a part of a church like that where it's just an evangelistic church, so to speak. We want to be a healthy church. We want to be both, we want to grow both deep and wide. Healthy churches always grow. If we, can, if we more focus on the, hey, let's be healthy as a church, then we're always going to grow in width and in depth. But as they discussed the doctrinal and in this case, doctrinal matters, in this case, it was the uh, circumcision that the Gentiles, they, the Jews thought it was right for the Gentiles to be circumcised. And as a result of that, there was a big discussion, uh, fight, and they had to hash it out. They, they said, they came to conclusion that the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised, that it, the gospel is by grace alone. That's a wonderful, amazing uh, counsel that they have there that really is uh, true today. We're, we're, we're literally, because these guys hash it out behind the scenes as elders, as leaders, as we talked about last week, it is not for the congregation to 
hash it out and then come to conclusion and bring the whole church in on that. But rather it is for the congregation to submit their questions to the leadership and so that there could be a healthy way of going about those difficult matters. But how many know that after the council, after discussing doctrinal issues, we got to get back on mission. Uh, We're we're not just a a church that just hashes out theology all day. Um, That is not what God's called us to do. He's called us to be a missional church. But that also includes hashing out doctrinal matters. What is spiritual warfare? What does it mean when we say be baptized? Uh, What does dating look like? What is marriage like what I mean, all those I mean, those are doctrinal issues. Uh, can women preach? Or uh, these are controversial issues that you often find in the church, and they are important to talk about. So we're not just a church that says, "Hey, we're just a missional church," or "Hey, we just want to love Jesus." No, no, no. We are a missional church that preaches the gospel, but also also teaches sound doctrine. Amen. Okay. Verse 36, after some days, in other words, after the Jerusalem council, they brought the letter to the Gentiles and said that your salvation is by grace alone and I want you to abstain from, from uh, meat sacrifice to idols and uh, meat that, uh, you know, the, from strangle, strangulation and, and blood and then also from fornication. Those are four simple things uh, that three of them probably could be dropped off today. They're very specific to that time as we talked about last week. But of course, fornication still remains today because of uh, the Bible is, a, is clearly against sexual morality. But these people, they, they, uh, they, they received this message with joy. And they said, we, we care about uh, not only these, these truths in scripture, but each other, that fellowship matters. Unity matters in the church as well. So after these days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit. Let us return and visit. Underline that. Why is that important? Because sometimes we can get so hung up on doctrinal issues, we can forget the mission. Let us return to the mission. Yes, we need times where we hash things out, but if we forget the mission, we cease to exist. We cease to exist. Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. You know, that's really a mission statement of who we are as a church. I mean, that's, that's who we are. We're like, hey, let's not only just go to these places and share the gospel, but man, we can't wait to see what God has done in those places. We want to see our family again. That's why we went to Washington, D.C. for... Uh, I don't know, I was there for, was, would this be the fourth or fifth time, fourth time um, that in, in the last four or five months? And it's such a delight to go there to visit with family. And yes, all of our, all the churches that are in our network, they're all different. And, and we're not saying, hey, copy this, this, and this. We're just saying that we're a family and we want to go help our family out. Make sense? That's what we see in the New Testament. That's why we designed our church the way we designed our church. Sometimes it's helpful to go back to the reasons why we do what we do. All right, so number one is God gave us a passion for mission. He has given us a motivation. We need to know why we are evangelistic. Why has God called us to do this? We can't just do this merely out of obedience, although that is primary. 
but also it is much helpful when I can be motivated to get out and share the gospel. Romans 15, 20, this is Paul speaking. I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ is already named so that I will not build on another man's foundation. You know, some of you are called to be apostolic and to go to places that no other person has gone before. Do you know there's still places like that on the earth today that, that the gospel has not been preached? That is a specific calling, not for everyone. Not for everyone, but there are some in this room that are called to go to those places, to give their lives to a people who have never heard. 1 Corinthians nine sixteen. for I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Oh man, Paul was motivated. He had an internal motivation. Yes, he heard the Lord's command to go, but he also had a love for people. He was compelled to go. There has to be an internal motivation along with training for evangelism. So when you guys come and you, and you hear training for Washington, D.C., or you hear training in your college ministry or in young adult ministry, listen, you got to receive the how. It is important to learn how to do the track. But much more important is the internal motivation. If love is not on our hearts and you have an outstanding track in your hands, you've missed it. You're missing something. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says this, for the love of Christ controls us. What controls you? What is controlling you when you go out and evangelize? Is it your religiosity? Or is it truly the love of Christ that compels you, that controls you? And having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, including us, we have died to ourselves. Like we said a number of weeks ago, we are slaves to Christ and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. I think it's crazy that a Christian were were dead. We've discussed that over and over almost every week. We say that you're dead, you're children of wrath. And then you're saved, you become a slave of Christ, and then on top of that, you live for yourself. There's so many Christians in the church today living for themselves. That doesn't make any sense. But rather, he says, but for him I live for, the one who died and rose again on my behalf. Our bodies, our lives are not our own. So therefore, if you don't have an internal motivation, ask for one. And while you're asking for an internal motivation, you might get saved. Romans 15, 22 to 23, I, I've often been prevented. He's speaking to the Romans. This is one of the last chapters. 16 is the last chapter. But what he's saying to the Romans, he's saying, look, I want to come and visit you. I, am, I, I, I long to visit you. He's saying, I, I've often been prevented from coming to you. And it's frustrating. But now with no further place for me in these regions. And since I have had for many years a longing to come to you. Where do you long to go? Where are you longing to go? Where do you desire to preach the gospel? 
Where, where is that? You look at the houses as you drive into your neighborhood. Do you look at those houses and say, oh, I long to talk to those people. Do you look at a world map or the flags in the back and say, oh, I long to go there. Not just to eat Italian pizza and mostacholi and stuffed shells and oh my goodness. But, but to go and to preach the gospel to the Italians, I do, I desire that. I'd love to go. It'd be wonderful. And then Paul said, Rome is not enough. He says in verse 24, whenever I go to Spain, whenever I go, he's like, I'm, it's a done deal. I, I'm going, I'm going to go. <laughs> I mean, he, we know he did not go. He died before that. For I hope to see you in passing the Romans. He's like, I just want to see you in passing because I got other places to go. I'm compelled to go other places. I'm not stopping until everybody hears. Hudson Taylor said this in between 1832 and 1905. This is the time when he was a missionary. I have a strong, I have a stronger desire than ever to go to China. Listen to his heart here. That land is ever in my thoughts. Think of it, 360 million souls. That was then. It's 1.4 billion people now. Without God or hope in the world. Think of more than 12 million of our fellow creatures dying every year without any consolation of the gospel. Barnsley, which is a town in England, including the common, has only 15,000 inhabitants. Imagine what it would be if all of these were to die in 12 months. Yet in China, year by year, hundreds are dying for every man and woman and child in Barnsley. Poor, neglected China. Scarcely anyone cares about it. You know, there's places in the world even now that nobody even cares. Look at your newsreel. You think these people care about the most destitute places on the planet? No, their concern is to incite you to be passionate about politics, not Jesus. That's the design of the news, not to inform you about the lost. They are lost. It's the blind leading the blind, right? Richard Baxter says this, a Puritan in the 1600s, he says, I am contented to consume my body to sacrifice to God's service and to spend all that I have and to be spent myself for the souls of men. These people were willing to just, they were willing to die for him, not live for some other worldly cause, but to hear their, their savior say, well done, my good and faithful, what? Servant. The key word is servant. We often forget about that. Faithful servant. That means there's work to do. There's a mission to fulfill. David Brainerd, which he was a contemporary of, uh, of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Heath loves this man. You can ask about, he reads his stuff too as well. He reached the Native American Indians these are a very neglected group. In fact, they still are. 
I care not where I go. May that be said of us. You know, we don't really care where we go. Just send us somewhere, Lord. Or how I live, I I don't care where I go or how I live. Or what I endure so that I may save souls. When I sleep, I dream of them. When I awake, they are the first in my thoughts. No amount of scholastic attainment of able and profound exposition of brilliant and stirring, stirring eloquence can atone for the absence of a deep and passion, sympathetic love for human beings. You can't read it into your souls. God's got to give that to you. One theologian says this, if you're going to do evangelism, if you're going to be a missionary, if you're going to proclaim the kingdom of God, if you're going to tell people about the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to start with an attitude. It's going to start in the heart. You can train people until you're blue in the face. You can give them all kinds of information. You can load their theological gun. You can give them strategies and methodologies, but effective evangelism is done by highly motivated people. Understand that it's not about training, it's about motivation. And that motivation is love. It's not coercion. It's not manipulation. It's love. It's love and obedience. Spurgeon says this, winners of souls must first be weepers of souls. When's the last time we actually wept over the lost? If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned or unprayed for it. Amen? So good. You know, recently I looked up uh, Piper's, John Piper's son who is not saved. It's really sad. When you look him up, uh, you can read about his stuff. He's, um, I love TikTok. I, I gotta, I'm just kidding. I do not love TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> It's one of my favorite things all day long. It's amazing. I dance and sing on it. You should check it out. Um, But he's on TikTok, and uh, I had the pleasure of going on to that site um, to look him up. (laughs) Lord, help us. Um, But as I'm looking, a little more sobering, as as I was hearing... John Piper's son, I couldn't help but be grieved as a father of this well-known man who written uh, dozens of books and is just one of the wisest believers, theologians in our day. But you know, it's not guaranteed that our kids, kids become saved. You know, it's not, this is not an opportunity to look at him and say, what did John Piper do wrong? It's not the right thing to do to judge him. And so there's a couple of principles here, but the main one is when I'm, when I'm hearing him, one of the things that struck me was he was saying, he was making fun of Christians. And he was saying, basically he was saying, hey, if these people actually really believed in hell, how could you possibly even go out to dinner with your family? 
How could you even have a normal life? Now, this isn't meant to ruin anybody's life or every, I mean, we're not to beat ourselves up and live with this constant thought of hell every second of the day because ultimately God saves people. But I don't think we should never think about it. We shouldn't be occupied with it. I read something else the other day that said, this is the, four, the, the few things that Christians don't believe in. They don't believe in God, salvation. Uh, they don't believe in heaven or hell. It's true. Because if we did, we'd live differently, wouldn't we? If we actually really believed these truths, both of heaven and hell, both of who God really is, his love and his wrath, if we really did have a balanced view of who God is, his theology, we would live differently. We would preach differently. We would see differently. In fact, Penn and Teller says this, <laughs> these people I don't often you know, watch. I've never been to Vegas as far as a city. I've just passed through the airport. But these guys are entertainers in, in Vegas and one of the things I said, this is a video I watched uh, as a youth pastor a number of years ago, probably 12, this had been 12, 13 years ago. And one of the things in this video, Penn and Teller, some of you may not know them, they're entertainers in Vegas and they're obviously not believers. Um, very worldly. He said, look, somebody the other day, he, wrote, he, he did like a, a video and he posted it. You probably can find it online. But he said, if, this person was sharing the gospel with them and he was, they were telling him about hell. They were saying, you, you, you can't, or pleading with him, please don't go. I mean, this place is real. And he was pleading, and, and, he, and he thought about this. He, it dawned on him, he's saying, actually, that guy is really loving. I mean, I don't believe in it. It's a hoax, it's false. But if I did, and this person's actually warning me, that's the most loving thing they can do. And then he reversed it. He says, how unloving is it that believers, knowing about this horrific place, stay silent about it? How could they do that? I mean, that was super convicting. It really is. Not as some, they feel like they don't have a call. In this church, I've heard it being said, well, you know, I really don't have a call to go to Japan. I don't have a call to go to Colombia. I don't have a call to go to Mexico. I don't have a call to go to D.C. I don't have a call. I don't have a call. I don't call. Really? William Booth said this, not called, you say? Not heard the call? I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible. Hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burden, the agonized heart of humanity. And listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell. Hear the damn entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. Then look, then look Christ in the face whose mercy you have professed to obey and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. We're all called. We're all called to go. And I think that, guys, the point is when we ask people to go on mission, we're just 
it's, we're just mimicking our Savior's words. We're just saying, go. It has nothing to do with whether we have this mystical call or not. We're all called. We're all called to go. And I thought it was interesting that Spurgeon said, have you no wish for others to be saved? It's not about a location. It's about souls. It never is really about location because every location has souls in it. Every location has lost people in it. We've got to change things, church. When we are invited to go on mission, we're like, there are souls there. Let's go. And when we're faithful with those places, I've seen it time and time again, God will reward. If there is a special subjective call to go to Japan or to go to England or to go to these different places, and some in this church have, you know, they eventually go. God's faithful to send them only when they're faithful to go to places that maybe they don't feel quote unquote called to. But Spurgeon says this, have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you aren't saved yourself. Be sure that I won't believe that you have tasted of the honey of the gospel if you can eat it all by yourself. (laughs) Isn't that good? You know, there's something wrong with us if we're like, you know what? Let the others go, whatever. They, God will deal with that. We should be grieved at the lostness of our world. Grieved at it. We may, the next point, next point in this or sub point is, is, is that we may have a desire, but we need boldness. I find myself here often that we do have a desire. I love, the, I love the lost. I want them to come to Christ, but man, I need, to, I need boldness. I need supernatural to help to open up my mouth. Hear the words of scripture, Acts 4.31. When they had prayed, key word, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and begun to speak the word of God with boldness. 2 Corinthians 3.12, therefore having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. Ephesians 6, 19, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening up my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. If you don't have boldness or if it's, it's hard to get the gospel off your lips, ask for prayer for boldness in your life groups, in your discipleship, when you're about to go out. The most humble thing you can do is you're gathering around on campus and you're about to go out and share the gospel or when we're in DC, wherever we are, is to say, hey, real quick, could you pray for me? because I'm having a little bit of the fear of man. That is normal. Paul, the, the reason why they kept asking, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me, is because God understood the human, he understands the human heart. He understands that it's, it's hard sometimes to be in certain circumstances, open your mouth up with family or open your mouth up with classmates or teachers or bosses or coworkers. It's hard to do. And that's why we need to ask for boldness. God doesn't just give us this command to do this and give us a level of motivation, but to leave us hanging on the power to do it. He gives us everything we need to fulfill his mission. 1 Thessalonians 2.2 says, after we have already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amidst or amid much opposition. Richard Baxter says this, a foolish physician he is and a most unfaithful friend, 
that will let a sick man die for fearing of troubling him. What would you say about a doctor that does that? And a cru- cruel wretches and cruel wretches are we to our friends that will rather suffer them to go quietly to hell than we will anger them or hazard our reputation with them. We shouldn't let anybody quietly go to hell on our watch. Pastor reminds us, he says, if you know how to, if you know that you are, if you know how you are saved, then you should be able to tell others how you're saved. In other words, maybe we don't need the training we think we do. Think about that. Sometimes the more training that we're asking for tells us something about our hearts. That if we simply know how to get saved, I mean, we know how we got saved. It was very evident. In fact, just at Life Group the other night, I was sharing with our Life Group at Family Life Group, and I was just sharing the moments of my salvation, of regeneration, and how God saved me, and how he opened up my heart. And, you know, as I, if I know those elements of salvation, it's very easy for me to talk to somebody about salvation. Because I'm confident in what God did in my life I'm surely confident that God, if it is his will to open up that person's heart, surely I'm confident to give them the message. Another element under the motivation for missions is discipleship is the goal, not converts. In verse 36, they were going back to these places. I love this. That let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of God and see how they are. In other words, guys, we're a disciple-making church. It takes a lot of time for you to be mature in Christ. A long, a lifetime. It's in the, it's in the, the twinkling of an eye that we, we're going to be raptured and glorified but it's a whole lifetime. It's in the in between, between salvation, which happens in a moment, to glorification, which happens in a moment. It's in that, it, it's still a miracle. Both are miracles, salvation and glorification, but in the middle, sanctification is just as much as a miracle. Why? Because it's not your work. It's his work to form you in Christ. But he uses us in that process. Salvation is a soul act of God. Glorification is a soul act. You tell me that someone who's been dead for 500 years, they're going to glorify themselves in the grave? Yeah, right. Just as much as they could not dead in their trespasses save themselves, as much as them in dead for centuries and years and decades cannot, cannot glorify themselves. They cannot give themselves a new body. But I'll tell you, there is a partnership in sanctification and it involves us to go back to those places, back to campus, follow up with, one of my my most favorite things to do when we were starting the church was to go onto campus and share the gospel. But then I would do my work on campus. I'd do my discipleship with the people that I was meeting with. And it was inevitable that I would always see somebody walk out of the towers. I think it was Tiffany a couple of times. She'd lived in towers. She'd walk out and say, hey, Tiff, what's going on? I, you go to our church. It's just, you would, it would, we'd just we'd catch up. And that familiarity would bring such strength to the church. There are so many uh, unplanned discipleships just because we were present on campus and present in the city. 
ran into Kisla the other day, just at, what was that, at Aldi. And it was just so fun just to see each other. I know that wasn't necessarily discipleship. I mean, we didn't really talk about those things, but it was a mutual encouragement because we longed to see one another. It says we just want to see them. What a great motivation to do discipleship, just to see one another. Are you, are you, are you meeting with each other because you have to or because you want to? There's a difference. And these disciples just love to be with each other. Philippians 1, 6 and 8 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you, because I have in you my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers, excuse me, partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He just wants to be with them. And he's in prison and he can't wait to get out and be with them. Can you not wait to get back to Japan to meet with the beloved? Can you not wait to come back or get back with those in Sweden and those in Europe and those around the world in Colombia, those places? Don't wait for me. We're going to get so big as a church and grow that you cannot wait for one man to say, okay, you go there and you could go there. Are you motivated? Are you going to use your funds to go take the family with you? Eventually, we have to mature as a church. You have to have an internal motivation, passion for souls and to be with the disciples, those who we've reached. 1 Thessalonians 2.17, but we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, we were all, the, all more, me, excuse me, we were all more eager with great desire to see your face. Do you have that college ministry? Do you have that? Do you want to see one another? Have you lost vision? Have you lost the reason why we do what we do? Young adults, have you missed your opportunity? You could still be on campus during your lunch hour or you can still go back to those places or invest in college students longing to see the church even throughout the week. In fact, my kids get in the car and anytime we get in the car and go run an errand, we're like, oh, who are we going to see today? I was on the way to, to church today. I was just so thankful that we live. I was just so thankful that we live right across the street for uh, for so many years, it was just wonderful just, just to walk over to church. And now I have to drive a whole eight minutes. Uh, but I'm just thankful that we live within a three to five, I guess we can now say seven miles. We're growing. But we've just been so faithful and it's paying off that every, every time, you know what it gives you? It gives you a little bit of accountability too just to continue to act right in public, right? Um, don't be yelling at the grocery store person or whatever. If you're like, who's that? They go to our church, you know. Um, but it, it adds that. And sometimes people like to drive 45 minutes away because no one knows them, right? It adds that accountability. That's discipleship. And we're, we're called to, as you go to the different places, as you live your life, be a disciple maker. That's who we are as a people. That's what I love about this church. And then 1 Corinthians 
For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ, I became your father through the gospel. You have a family here, fathers and mothers, sisters and brothers. And then the last part of this is maturity in Christ is the goal of every outreach. Every time we do outreach, understand you might go to a brand new city. We might go to Turkey one day. We might go to Greece one day. We might go to, Italy. We might go to all these different places. But understand every time you walk onto that airplane, I want them to be mature in Christ. That is the goal. That is always the goal. Everything else is a byproduct. I mean, you get to do it with family, wonderful. That's, you get to see the different sites. That's great too. And eat the different foods. All those things are wonderful. But do you have it in your heart every time you do missionary, missionary work? Do you have it? Because all of us are missionaries. Do you have it in your heart to see people mature in Christ? There is nothing else worth giving your life to. Nothing else. Ephesians 4, 12 and 13, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God to the mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And then in Colossians 1.28, this is Paul's mission statement virtually, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. In other words, how many know that it's really hard work to do international missions work? There's a lot of cultural differences. There's a lot of sin habits that maybe they struggle with versus what we struggle with. They're different and they're new believers. And sometimes we could just get so irritated with them. Instead, we could look at them and say, no, they too have the same goal to become more like him. That is the same goal that Christ has for them as he has for you. Acts 20, verse 31, therefore be on alert, remembering that night and day For a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. That is a test, whether you're truly a missionary or not, is if you are to the point of tears at times, at the point of anguish, the point of getting up in the middle of the night saying, oh Lord, please save them. Please save the Japanese people. 127 million people who have never heard in one nation alone. Point number two, uh, <laughs> we're going to get there. He, is, he gave us a family to do mission. That he's not just, it's not just an individual thing. It's not for you to fulfill your individual calling, but it's a, he's given all of us a family to do missions. Verse 37, but it says here, Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had, to take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and not had gone with them to work, to, or to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left them, or left being committed to the brethren, to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria, Sicilia, and strengthening the churches. 
and then they came to Derby, etc. I'll get to that in a second. But understand that a family who seeks God together on mission is a wonderful statement until you realize that there's conflict. And the reality is that there's external conflict and internal conflict. In verse, or in Acts 13, we have a little bit, a lot of people get, I mean, there are so many, we're not going to get involved here and maybe why. I think the point of this passage is that there was conflict in missions. There was conflict amongst the family. There always will be. So we're not going to necessarily get in, although I'll give you a couple reasons why maybe they had this conflict. In Acts 13, it gives you a little bit of a clue. It says, now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. In other words, a little bit of a background would tell you that it was, they were going through very rugged, par, rugged terrain, mountains, and there were thieves that were hidden sometimes in the crevices of the mountains and robbers. Paul talks about that in, in Corinthians. And perhaps the journey was a little too much for someone like John Mark, who is very young in, in the faith, very young in age. And so he left. Some of us, you know, I, I, I think there are. There, are, there were some of, I mean, just in that point, there were some of us who go overseas, maybe we're just not cut out for that type of work. It's too rigorous. That's okay. But the point is, is that they had conflict, but they both went back to mission. And they're a part of the family of God. In fact, they, uh, they reconciled later in 1 Corinthians 9, 6, Paul says, or do only Barnabas and I have a right to refrain from working? Now, that was around when he wrote Corinthians, right? He wrote around 55, 56 AD. And so we understand that this passage here in the Jerusalem Council was probably somewhere around the 40s. And so we understand that he did indeed reconcile with Barnabas. In fact, he not only reconciled with Barnabas, but with John Mark, who is Barnabas' cousin. In Colossians 4.10, we realize that Barnabas' cousin, he said, hey, send greetings to them. He wasn't mad at them. He was not offended with them. Philemon 24 says uh, he, he also mentions Mark and his fellow, among his fellow workers with Luke. And 2 Timothy 4.11 says, pick up Mark and bring him with you for what? He is useful to me in service. Isn't that amazing? They are a reconciling church. They were a reconciling church. Not only with Paul, but also with Peter. 1 Peter 5.13, uh, he mentions John Mark, who John Mark, by the way, was one who wrote the gospel of Mark. Peter wrote the gospel of Mark through Mark. Uh, he was a sort of amanuensis, uh, And so he, he, helped, he helped, our secretary, he helped write the, the letter. Um, and so Mark had, Mark was in. Mark may not have been cut out for this rigorous journey, but he was in the faith. He was in the family. They worked things out. Can I just say that conflicts give us an invitation to grow, not an opportunity to leave. Amen. I'll say that again because that felt so good. Conflicts give us an invitation to grow, not opportunities to to leave. So many have forfeited their calls to missions because they were unable to overcome offense. Woo! 
Amen. It's your life. The mission will go on without you. It has for centuries. We need to learn how to overcome offense. We need to learn how to have discourse. If you, if you learn anything from Acts 15 or Acts 16, it's this. They learn how to overcome offense. They learn how to get through issues. They weren't wimps. They weren't cowards. They were men and women of God. They learn how to overcome conflicts, biblically. They learn how to get back on mission. In verse 40, uh, they uh, continued to travel, and I love that they strengthened the churches. We need to strengthen our campus, strengthen our, our church here, but also many around the country and in the nation, in the nation's and I love their boldness in verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came back to Derby. Uh, can I just remind you? And in Lystra, do you know what happened there? He got almost, he almost died because he got stoned to death. Many of us would not walk, waltz right back into the country where we almost got stoned or it was almost died by a stoning. Like, I think I might avoid that place. But he went back in. Why? Because those people were important to Paul. There are people around the world right now that need us. They need us to follow up. They need us to, to follow up with them. They need us to spend the money, to sacrifice, to go. God's called us to do it. Verses one and three, this is an important part here. They needed to add to the team. You know, we're always looking, and the reality is we are a missional church and we're always looking for more missionaries. And that's everybody. Everybody. Because every person that comes through the doors, they're missionaries. Do you look at them that way? Do you look at every person that comes through those doors just as another one that's just going to sit in the seat? Let me just ask you this. If you came in to this church for the first time and someone, uh, and you, 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 know, you were looking at others, would you want them thinking, oh, look at another person who's just going to warm the seat? Or would you want them coming in saying, there's another missionary there's another disciple maker. There's another soldier for Christ. There's another farmer, another sower of seed, another pastor, another evangelist. Do you look at them like that? Because that's the body. That's 1 Corinthians 12. So they looked and Paul said, hey, great, I got Timothy. Wonderful. He says, here, and a disciple was there named Timothy. He probably, most likely, a lot of scholars say he heard the gospel being preached while the, at the first missionary and the first missionary journey. And then he came to follow up with Timothy and said, hey, this is a guy I could have on my team. And his father was Greek, which is do not ever miss any detail in the Bible. It tells you so much. It gives you so many clues to what's going on. And he was well spoken of. So he was a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer and his father was Greek and he was well spoken of by the brethren. He had great integrity. Paul wanted this man to go with him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts 
for all knew that the father was Greek. Now, some say, wait, hold on. We just had a discussion about circumcision in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council, and now we're circumcising these people? I don't understand. You got to look at the, the, the context of that, and I'll get to there in a second. But while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon the apostles and elders, so they were faithful with that document to hand to the Gentile people so that the churches were being strengthened in, num- in faith and increasing number in number daily. So they were growing deep and wide. Now, I just want to just take a moment to explain this. Point number three is he gave us people to reach. That's the third point. God gave us people to reach. Now, we have to understand, we have to understand who they are. Do you know the people you're reaching? And I'm talking about just, I mean, our, our country has gotten so diverse. You just, I mean, you have the nations in your backyard. Do you know who you're dealing with? Do you know their background? They're not just a lost person. They actually have a background. They come from somewhere. And that should be important to us. Now, the point is, is that they were very sensitive to the culture. Paul understood his, the people he was reaching and he understood that if I take Timothy, who has a mixed background of both Jew and Gentile, his, grandparent, his grandmother and mother shared the gospel with him, most likely they were believers. They were Jewish, brought him up in the faith. He got saved, but his father was Greek. It was a mixed family. There's a lot going on there. The reason why Paul took him and circumcised them is because he was sensitive to the cultural, cultural, cultural background of the people he was reaching. But here's the catch. He didn't compromise the gospel. So many mission agencies talk so much about the background and the, it's so much about, uh, you know, you, you, how to reach people, the culture, the culture, the culture. Guys, we're going to Washington, D.C., and yes, it's a very politically charged place, but the reality is they're Americans. They're just like us. Right? We don't have to get so deep involved and, hey, just be sensitive. But we probably should go in with a level of sensitivity because they do stare at the White House versus us. We stare at palm trees. They stare at White Houses, right? It's a little different. Those palm trees remind us of sunny days and relaxed culture. And that's, I mean, you know, you get it. But we're just as busy as anywhere else. But we do need to be culturally sensitive with the people we reach without compromising the gospel. Why did, it, why, why did Paul circumcise Timothy? Is because the Jews who were, uh, and by the way, I, I, I'll say this, it, in order for, okay, so for, in order for Timothy to go into a synagogue to actually have authority to preach to those people, he had to be circumcised. Now, I don't know if there was a, you know, like a vaccine passport. I don't know if they had those. Um, I don't know if they had to show proof or, or uh, <laughs> I don't know what they had to do. But somehow they needed to know he was circumcised, Timothy, in order to receive the message. It is because there was a mixture. Now, isn't it interesting that Paul refused to circumcise Titus? Why? Because he was fully Gentile. Paul was a wise man. 
And guys, there are things that we have to deal with before we go on an airplane and get our passport stamped. We do need to learn things about the culture, but we cannot compromise. So much of our culture today, we're compromising, 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 even with our own American culture. There's so many things, whether it's CRT or whether all these different cultural things that have come into the church, we've got to be careful that we, yes, we've got to be sensitive. Yes, we've got to reach people, but we cannot compromise the gospel. Amen? All right, 1 Corinthians 9, this will do it. 19 through 20, for though I am a free, I'm free from all men. In other words, I don't have to do any of these cultural things, but I will say this. I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. There's a default and that default is to reach people. For the Jews, I became a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, those, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I might become all things to all men, so that I might, may, may by all means save some. That is not a license to compromise. That is motivation to reach people. The last two points are fairly short, so I'll have the band come up. But the fourth point is he gave us a message to preach. What is the message? Grace. The gospel of grace. Do you know how many people on campus need to know that? That their sins are forgiven? Have we forgot how simple this message is? Of course, you got to preach the law. You got to preach the scriptures. You got to preach depravity of man. That is that is the... The way in, I mean, if people don't know how sinful they are, certainly God forgives you, isn't going to help. Why should they feel forgiven if they don't need anything to be forgiven for? From. You got to talk about the wrath of God. You have to talk about the full gospel. That is important. Got to talk about hell. Not as a way to coerce people, but the realities of it, of those who reject. We do have a message to preach. He has given us a message to preach. That is clear. And in verse 6 to 10, they passed through the Phygerian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to, pe- to preach or the word in Asia. And after they came to Mesia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mesia, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the, in the night, a man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, very well-known passage, and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. It's obvious. The last point is that he's given us the spirit to direct us. One of the things that you can trust in this church is that God will direct us to the right places. Why are we going to Washington, D.C.? Is because the Spirit of God directed us there. Why did we not go to Salt Lake City in the fall? Because God did not 
bring us there. He put up road blockers. And he gave us the open doors to go to Detroit. In other words, it's not a free-for-all. It's not where do we want to go. It's where does he want us to go. Ultimately, God directs our paths. And, and what do they do? You know, the, the point of the Macedonian call is not that we get a vision in the night. Uh, frankly, we don't need that. And if God were to give us, wonderful. But it's got to go beyond the subjective. There is an objective call, and God has given us a passion for mission, a family to do mission with, a people to reach. He's given us a message to preach and the Spirit to direct us and ultimately empower us. And what I love about this last remaining verses here is not so much that I've heard preachers preach on, oh, we need a Macedonian call, Macedonian call. We do need a Macedonian call. But I'll tell you more than that, what I get from this is they were a moving target. They were a moving target. They tried to go north to Mesia. They tried to go to north to Bithynia. God would not let them. They tried to go west. You know where west was? West was in the book of Revelation. There are seven churches. Paul wanted to preach to the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3, but God would not let them because God wanted to raise up somebody else to do it. A lot of times, the reason why we're not supposed to go to Salt Lake or these other places is because God has already raised up somebody else to do it. We trust the sovereignty of missions. Let him do the work. We just simply obey. Isn't that wonderful? He's got it all really planned out here. All we have to do is say yes. That's it. I think that's what we've seen here. And those five points is ultimately, it comes down, we say so much about, we got to just say yes, say yes, say yes. But I've given you a biblical, uh, I guess, biblical substance to say yes now. You can look at this and say, well, yeah, I mean, this makes sense. At the end, all we have to do is say yes. Because he will lead us to those right places. He will give us a motivation. He'll give us a family to do mission with and to encourage us and to comfort us and to exhort us. He will certainly give us a a message. It's not our message. I was reading something from the 1800s. Do not distort the message he gave you. That is not our responsibility. To take this book and to rework things as if we're higher than that authority. We're under it. He's given us a message. We're slaves. I'll say that again. It's the most, probably, honestly, the most offensive term in the whole, all of the Bible, especially in today's news. Pastor calls congregations slaves. Write that in the news. Because we are. We are. We're grateful slaves. We're empowered slaves. We're in love with our master. He has saved us. He's given us everything that we need for life and godliness. He loves us so much. He's given his whole life to us. And like Paul said, we don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for him. So why don't you stand with me and let's worship the king. Let's worship the master. And let, us, let him commission you this morning. Let him, let his voice commission you 
and let him take you through those five points and motivate you to be the missionary slaves we're called to be. Father, thank you.